Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, I'm going to be talking to you about the Kingdom of God. And of course, I'm going to relate it to the kingdoms of the world today, which we don't call kingdoms anymore. We just call them governments, but that's all just in the language. Basically, if they have authority over you, that's the kingdom that you're in. And of course, the idea of the Kingdom of God is that the only one who should have authority over you is God. And, of course, that would be the case if we actually did what God said, which is to never make covenants with them nor with their gods, meaning the gods of the people that we go to. And what is a god? Well, in the Hebrew language, in the Greek language, uh, we have Elohim, we have Theos, and that means ruling judge. And if they're the ruling judge, then they have authority. If you were in Rome, they would call it the octoritas. That would be the authority. And uh, there's some people that think that uh, nobody should have authority over anybody else. And uh, then nobody has any authority over anything. Because we do have authority over things. Certainly a father and a mother who come together as husband and wife, uh, get married, whatever that means. Uh, and produce children. Uh, that's a unique uh, thing that only a man and a woman can do. They can produce other men and other women. They can produce other children. I I played on a show not too long ago, a little comedy routine, where the comedian is saying, uh, have you made your own people yet? <laughs> and, of course, he's talking about his kids. And this role of being the father of a house and the mother of a house, and raising children. That is a huge, huge responsibility. It is a right of dominion. It is a right of authority. Because you're literally investing your life into that child. I mean, you you don't just give birth which is a lot of labor involved in that, but you feed it, you care for it, you uh, provide for it. Over a long period of time, uh, you care for that child until they're able to care for themselves. And, of course, in the Gospel and in the Torah, we see a commandment, a guidepost, a a principle that we are to honor our father and our mother so that we, our own days upon the land, upon the earth on which we walk, will be long. If we do not take care of the needy of our society, uh, our parents, our families, then things will happen. Other things will take place. In, in our lives that is going to be distinctively different for us than than we may desire. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And it's automatically built into the system of life. It's already built into nature. That if you 
don't take care of your family, if you don't take care of the needs of uh, those around you, there will be consequences. If you go to men who exercise authority one over the other, there will also be consequences. This is what the Bible is telling us from the beginning to the end. And I've been working on all kinds of things this week. And I heard on the news just before the show starts where parents are upset about the CRT being taught in their schools. And they go to the school board meetings and they want the curriculums changed. And somebody was announcing, I didn't quite catch it on the news, but I'm sure you'll hear this. We've talked about it for 20 years because there were men in government that were saying that parents aren't in charge of their children. It's the government that's in charge of their children. And even though I've only been talking about it for maybe probably 40 years now, I'm getting older all the time, time is lapsing, that this is not only the mindset of a lot of people that are in what we call the government today, but it is actually written into the codes of the United States government. If you go look it up in the U.S. codes, you'll see a code using the Latin language written into the United States codes that Parents Patria says that the government is in charge of the children. They can say that the parents aren't fit and they can say we can take away the right of the parents, we can uh, terminate the right of the parents and they can't do anything about it. Oh, they can try to take them to court, but that would be very expensive. That's one of the things that the gentleman who was uh, talking about parents don't have a right to change the curriculum says that they can send their kids to very expensive schools, private schools, or to Catholic schools. I thought Catholic schools were private schools, but they don't have any right to change the curriculum in the schools that are established by statute. So somebody else is in charge of your children. Somebody else is even in charge of your parenting skills. Your pater familias, which is another word of the that you'll find actually in Black's Law Dictionary and Law Dictionaries, which is a Latin term. It's the family of the father. Pater familias, the family of the father. Father. And I actually started a page, I actually started, a, you know, I meant to start it last night. I've been working on, I created numerous, numerous pages over the night and over the last few days at preparingyou.com that is explaining the process, the natural process of you losing your rights and authority or access to them through natural law, and in order to do that, I hold up histories of America, histories of Rome, histories of Greece, histories of past civilizations that show you the method in madness where people go from the status of free souls under God and what I would call the kingdom of God to subject servants slaves back in the yoke of bondage under other men who will make a decision as to what happens to their children, what their children are taught, what their children are fed, what their children, you know, whether it's intellectually or even physically, 
or what is injected into their children uh, by whatever means that you don't have the right to decide that. But now they have to be very careful how they break that information to you because it's already in the codes. It's already in the statutes. It's already in the laws. And it's in the laws because you don't understand natural law. And you don't understand natural law often because you don't understand the God of nature who wrote the natural law when he created the universe. Now, whoever that God is, I mean, some people want to call him Yahweh. Some people want to call him just God. Some people want to call him Prince of Peace. Some people want to call him Jesus. Some people want to call him uh, Allah. They all have their names, but those are all just alphabetical designations. Uh, trying to identify. Words are just a symbol of ideas, and often names are just a symbol of ideas. I mean, Caesar knew that he was destroying the republic. I mean, Augustus Caesar. Julius Caesar knew it too. You know, most people don't know it, that before Julius Caesar became a general, he was a priest. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was a priest in the temple of Jupiter before he became a general. And, and he stopped being a priest in the temple of Jupiter because he fell out with Sula. And uh, he fell out with Sula because he supported the other side. And he had to support the other side because the other side was his uncle. <laughs> but anyway, because he supported his uncle in a civil war with Sula, uh, that when Sula won, Julius, Gaius Julius Caesar, had to get out of town pretty quick. And so he went and joined the army and then worked his way up in the army and eventually became a general and eventually became uh, part of the triumvirate after the passing of Sula. You know, a number of times he fell out with different regimes and had to be pardoned. There's a number of people that have, have done that. But the reality is is that because of his uncle, who had uh, created all kinds of different uh, reforms in the Roman military, because they changed... Because they brought reform to their Roman military, they did not realize that they were setting themselves up for absolute tyranny. And uh, and even Julius Caesar didn't realize that he was headed for absolute tyranny. It was called the Marian Reforms. And uh, it, they were put in place by Gaius Marius, who was Caesar's uncle. And uh, they were pretty simple reforms, uh, but they were, and they were very clever reforms, and they made the military a lot more effective and a lot more powerful, let's put it that way, in some senses. But what was making it ineffective? Because they, Romans used to beat almost everybody. I've told you before the story of when the Jutes came down and and uh, we're going to invade because of climate change. Sometimes when they came down, they came down because of climate change. Things got colder up north and crops failed. And hunting was, a lot of pressure was on the hunting. And so they went south hunting for treasure amongst those people, those soft people down there on, on the Mediterranean. And uh, so they they went down there. And at one point they they charged Rome the Roman centurions were out there 
the Roman soldiers were out there to save Rome, and they were so frightened by those Jews that they turned and ran. They ran off. They did not protect. And they just walked into the city. And the people just left their doors open. And uh, they could go anywhere and any place and take anything they wanted. They took so much treasure they couldn't carry it all back. And they, but they agreed to leave. If, you know, at one time this this kind of thing to some degree. This was the big event, uh, and so he got his weight in gold, the leader, and uh, they all went back. And uh, Rome was free again. But then Rome started thinking about these incursions from the north and said, we need to change things. Something's wrong. Uh, Our army is not protecting us. Well, what was their army? Well, their army was a militia. That's, that's what, that was the totality of their army was this militia was, just comes from all the different families of Rome. And you had to understand kind of how Rome was organized. And Rome had organized, because it had become a republic and thrown out the Tarquinian kings back in 500 B.C., they organized themselves as a republic. So they they looked around. Some of them were pretty smart, and some of them knew a lot of history, and they had educated themselves. And they looked around to see, what kind of government do we want if we're not going to have this central government of a king? How how do we take care of business, of being a nation? Because if we're just out there, you know, just in our own little uh, tribal villages and stuff like that, along comes a bunch of Jutes or a bunch of Teutons or, or Parthenians that could come along and uh, they could overrun us. Even a bunch of crooks could get together and overrun us. So we need some sort of protection. So we need some sort of army. But they had no system of taxes. They had no system of income tax. They really couldn't have any system of tariffs or anything like that. So they had to figure out some way of creating an army. And basically what they had to do was the young men, just like Abraham. You remember Abraham? Abraham... He was faced with an army. He actually was the army wasn't after Abraham. It wasn't going to attack Abraham. It appears that it was so full of booty that it was headed north and going to take it all of its all the stuff it stole and along with a lot of uh, a lot of prisoners that were going to be slaves in their own country and uh, they were going to take them back to wherever they came from and. Uh, they weren't going to bother Abraham. And besides, Abraham could move around because he, he was a keeper of flocks. And so they could move their flocks to another valley and the army would have to chase them. But what they didn't realize is there was at least one guy in the city of Sodom. Abraham would try to spare Sodom later and say, well, you know, if I can find a hundred guys that are nice, you know, and good and moral... Um, would you spare it? How about if I could find ten? And there was this like dickering going back and forth because Abraham was talking to somebody that they called angels, and uh, which means messenger in the Hebrew, that said that that city was going to be destroyed and uh, because it was doing really bad things, whatever that was. I mean, we could project what bad things they were doing. 
But uh, we'd have to not be doing them ourselves in order to figure it out. So, because if, if, if they were doing what we're doing now, then we would look at Sodom and Gomorrah and think, well, we don't do that. So, we're not, if we're doing exactly what Sodom was doing, and that we're actually setting ourselves up for some sort of destruction built into the law of nature, which we may identify as the wrath of God. We have an article up at Preparing You called The Wrath of God, and you can find out what the wrath of God is, which is really just the consequences that come from making choices like the choices that Marius was making when he decided to reform the army of Rome. That had been a militia. I mean, America had a militia. We we won against Britain back in 1776 with basically with the militia. I mean, when we talk about the Virginia Regiment, and we were just talking about that. We actually discovered somebody in the local community that is related to us. He's our tenth. Well, he would be my dad's tenth cousin. So he'd be my 10th cousin once removed. And uh, his kids would be my my children's 11th cousin. So that's not really very close. By the time you get down to that relationship, it's just like thousands and thousands of people with the same relationships. But we're all related somewhere. But what's interesting in that relationship is that, you know, he's a homeschooler. <laughs> So where where did that come from? Uh, so is there something passing down from generation to generation that gives us more in common than the fact that we're tenth cousins? But uh, I have never met him, so I don't know. So we'll have to meet him and find out. But there's a lot of people between me and uh, his family. But what really makes people brothers and sisters is the commonality of the soul. A commonality of the spirit. And, and when a certain spirit comes into a family or into a community or into a county or a state or a, a government or the world, the people of that world go in a particular direction. They make choices. They alter their culture. And they alter what they think is virtue. And they start going another way. They go a, a way that is not the way that they had gone before. And once they go down that way, what they can see and not see will change. And that's kind of what happened when Abraham's nephew, you know, who was his brother's son. I mean, Abraham, you know, he's the cousin to Abraham's kids. He's, he went to Sodom. And he lived in the city. And uh, maybe he thought he could bring morality to the city or something good to the city. But he was changed by the city. Certainly his wife was changed by the city. His daughters had some kind of crazy ideas as well. But Abraham was out there wrestling, wrestling with the unholy spirits that often invade our thinking. You know, Abraham was nine generations away from Shem, and uh, who was the son of Noah. And I heard, actually, I, I listened to uh, Jordan Peterson, at, the, at least 
the first part of Jordan Peterson talking with six other, uh, I guess they're theologians. Uh, to some degree, one way or the other, they're theologians. And uh, they had, uh, I was trying to think of some of their names, uh, Hadley, Dr. Hadley, uh, Os Guinness, uh, James Orr, uh, Dennis Prager is there. I guess he's not really a theologian, but he writes on the Bible. He's, he knows Hebrew. Uh, St- Stephen Blackwood and Jonathan uh, Pegg, or Peugeot. Uh, I think he's probably French-Canadian. But I didn't listen to the whole thing yet. I mean, it was actually kind of difficult to listen to for me because I, you know, I'm, I'm cringing like, uh, but it's a great opportunity for forgiveness uh, on my part to learn to forgive. But, uh, you know, they're talking about um, what they know about the Bible, and they're going to Exodus. And so I started going back and taking notes on Exodus. I have to put together a study on that. But one of the things that Jordan Peterson talked about is the Israelites were escaping tyranny. And that's a, that could be a misleading statement. Now, certainly there was some tyranny involved. Tyranny is actually a, from a Greek word. And uh, is connected to an office of Rome, which uh, I've referred to as principas civitas. A principate is another way that it's referred to. It's from a Latin word. And uh, it, it kind of means you're the first citizen. Uh, Caesar liked to say he was the first citizen, the first citizen amongst equals, uh, referring to everybody else supposedly as being equals. Except for the fact he wasn't the first, he was the principal civitas, and that's why I kind of like to use that, uh, that phrase, uh, because he was actually the president of the Senate. That was, Augustus Caesar was the president of the Senate. That was one of the offices he held. And that's really what that office meant. And uh, my son is fond of asking people the question, who's the first president of the United States? And everybody will say, George Washington. And, of course, there were seven presidents before George Washington's. They were presidents of the Congress, of the Continental Congress. And when he says president of the United States, he's talking small U, United States. But that's a, that's another whole story. But we'll we'll explore where some of these theologians are getting it wrong when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after just a a brief break. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about how we get to the point where the government says you don't have any right to decide what we're going to teach your children. That you have no say-so over that. We have to abide by the statutes. The statutes are their God. Whoever wrote the statutes are the gods of the school system. They have to obey the statutes. They don't pull out the Bible to see what the Bible says they may claim to be Christians, but they've got a contract with the state that says they got to do it the way the state says to do it. And that's, that's rightly so. They should do it the way that the state says they should do it. Unless, of course, they're going to be like the midwives in Egypt who were told to destroy the children. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. 
Now, they didn't tell, they didn't tell Pharaoh that they weren't going to do it. They told the Pharaoh that, oh, you know, the, those Israelite women, when we get there, they, the baby's already born. We can't do anything about that. We can't give them an abortive substance. They want, they want to have their kids. Now, that's kind of, you know, I'm paraphrasing the story as you can read it and kind of referring a little bit to what Jordan Peterson and those theologians were saying last night. They they said this this was an example of the first civil disobedience. But back to that, maybe we should clarify what this is all about, this civil disobedience. Before we get into that, let's go back to, were they really escaping tyranny? What were they escaping in the Exodus? They were escaping Egypt, but the word Egypt means bondage. And they were escaping the bondage of Egypt. And why were they in the bondage of Egypt? Because they consented to be in the bondage of Egypt. Why did they consent to be in the bondage of Egypt? What, I mean, what do you mean they consented to being in the bondage of Egypt? I, I did hear one of the theologians. I was just listening to it in the background while I was writing. And so I didn't really... I think it's the guy from Cambridge, but I could be wrong on that. He mentioned, well, really, he brought up the corvée uses the word corvée. And uh, I always been saying corvée for years and years. And I guess there is a little apostrophe on there. And I've started putting the apostrophe. But I had the habit of saying corvée. But it is C-O-R-V-E-E. We have an article up on that at Preparing You. You can go look at what it is. It's a French word. Which means statutory labor. And there, you could translate it a number of ways. But that's a very common way. Statutory labor. And see, it's statutory rules that say that your kids have to learn CRT. Their kids have to be sexualized in school if that's what the state codes say, the state statutes say, you see. Because they're going by the statutes of the gods of the world that you live in. Now, you know, I know you don't want to call your legislature's gods, but... They do exercise authority. They do make laws. And they do rule over. Certainly they rule over the people in the school system because they pay the people in the school system through their treasury. Their treasury is full of a lot of money. Actually, it's not really. It's full of a lot of debt notes. But we think that that's where all the money is coming from. The the money's being created. And the money's being created and creating debt... In the previous show, I talked about the debt clock. And, you know, if you go and look up the official debt clock, it, it gets up to, whatever, $31 trillion. And somebody owes that. And, of course, the people who owe that in commerce, in according to statutory criteria, is the government of the United States, which includes the beneficiaries of the United States government, which includes everybody who can get a benefit from the United States government. And, of course, you know who they are. It's the people who have been numbered by the United States government. They can get a benefit. Well, they're also responsible for the debt. As beneficiaries, you'll be responsible for the debt of the United States. 
And so anyway, the point is, is that you've changed a lot of things. There's so many layers to this. And I know there, I'm, I'm touching on little rabbit trails. I'm not going to go down them or we won't get through some of the things that I want to share with you today. But we, the people, didn't used to include your average American living on his own land in America, in the individual states. We, the people, didn't refer to them. We, the people, referred to the peoples whose names were at the bottom of the document when they signed it, and then later on referred to the people who became the senators and congressmen of the legislature, who became the judges of the judiciary, uh, and who became the executive officers of the executive branch of government. All those guys were the United States. And, and people, we got a whole show and article on people who said, well, they, you know, they incorporated the United States Constitution back in 18, whatever it was, 75, 76, somewhere around there. <laughs> and, uh, and it perverted the Constitution. The Constitution from the beginning to the end, if you read it, it is a corporate charter creating the United States government. And the people who created the United States government are the, we the people who sat down and wrote it up. But it had no authority, it had no positions or power until somebody consented to those positions of power and took oaths saying they consented to the power of the Constitution. And that was the senators and congressmen who raised the right hand and say, we promise to defend the Constitution. And they... They have to do that before they can sit in the offices that the Constitution created when that corporate charter was written. And the small U United States became the capital U United States and it became an actual government. It came, became a government by consent. It wasn't put to the vote of the people because they didn't need their consent to create that government. If they had put it to a vote of the people, they would have voted it down. But they, it didn't really have anything. They weren't a party to it. Ruling after ruling says the people in, in America were not a party to the Constitution. They are now. And they are now because they eat at the table of the United States government. Set by the United States government. Provided. They, they go and apply for the benefits of the United States government. And that's exactly what it was happening with the Roman people. Now, they had a little bit, well, not too much of a different history. I mean, you could plug in some of the same pieces of the puzzle. I mean, there were a lot of Romans, the Latins, who lived there. They're the ones who threw out the Tarquinian kings and set up a republic. And like I said, they were looking around to see where there was another republic they could fashion their, their society after. And, of course, the earliest republic that we really have recorded with any detail is Israel, which was a republic set up by Moses after the people that left Egypt, who left with Moses, became that republic in the desert. And, I, and it was a republic, much as the Romans wanted to create, the Tacitus says they could never have. Of course, Tacitus is coming along when they're about to pick a emperor. But uh, 
the original republic was called Libera Res Publica, which means a place where you were free from things public. You were free from those statutes of men. You weren't subject to the statutes of men. You were subject to law. They knew there was law before there were statutes. I always remember I, when I, I read this, must be 50 years ago now, and I'm reading along, and it says the first statutes were passed in America. This is way back in the colony days. And they were the first laws passed in America against known crimes. Well, how'd you know they were crimes if there wasn't any statute saying it was against the law? Well, you see, you know, it's that's really very easy to understand, but you have to let go of the idea that you think the statutes they make are the law. They are law. And where I really got a better grasp on that idea was when I kept reading all the Latin in the Black's Law Dictionary. Because there's a lot of Latin in the Black's Law Dictionary. I mean, a lot of Latin. I mean, there isn't hardly a page where there isn't numerous, numerous lines of Latin. Unfortunately, when I I was a young man of 13, I began to study Latin. Because <laughs> I went to one of those expensive private schools that uh, the guy was taught. I never went to public school. And uh, I kept, I would read the Latin... You know, they'd give you the translation, and I'd read the Latin in the Black's Law Dictionary, and I was noticing that there's two different words they're translating into law a lot of the time. They don't always translate both of them into law, but they do a lot of times. One was lex legis, which meant legal, which is actually a Latin word that means to bind, and the other one is use juris, or juice juris, as we would say. There's different ways of pronouncing words in Latin. There's classical and there's church Latin. But the jus juris was what is law, was what was just right and fair. What they call jus naturale, the natural law. That just exists. That's not subject to statute. By definition, those that phrase, natural law or the law of nature, is not subject to statute. You can get any king, potentate, principate, ruler you want. He cannot change the natural law. Now, he can say he changed the natural law, but the definition of natural law is it isn't subject to acts of parliament or decrees of Caesar. It is what is. And there's a lot of people over the thousands of years who were trying to determine what is. And so they were, and they've written down their opinions of the natural law, and you can look that up, and, and there are a lot of maxims of the natural law, which we are trying to point to these ideas of, you know, like Einstein did with E equals MC squared. If you do this this way, this will happen. We've observed that. So we've we we observed that for thousands of years, so we've written it down as part of the natural law. And and they're right a lot of the time. But uh, everybody who reads the natural law is not right because 
it's words, it's symbols of ideas when they read it, and therefore they can change the meaning of those words, and then you can get confused again. You know, like I, I said just a little bit ago, that Caesar was a priest. That was his first job. His dad died when he was about 16, and he had to take over. He was the highest son of Caesar the father. <laughs> and so, therefore, he was now in charge of the family, and he's 16. And I, I don't know the exact date that he became a priest in the Temple of Jupiter, but it he was probably around 16 when he did. Very close in that period. It's around 80 B.C. And uh, it wasn't long after that that uh, he was in trouble with, uh, you know, with Sula. And uh, when Sula won, then he had to do something about it. And he be- he went into the military and eventually became a general. And he evidently rose in ranks rather quick. But then because of the changing of the nature of the army, all history was changed. Marius, who most people don't even know his name, he's the uncle of Caesar, he had a greater effect on changing the course of history by his reforms in the military of Rome than probably Julius Caesar himself. But he gets very little credit. Of course, those changes set Rome on a path that was disastrous. And the more you study history, the more you can predict the future. That's why you study history is so that you don't make the same mistakes. Well, we made them in America. They've made them everywhere, all around the world. They've made those same mistakes that Marius made. And the people made when they followed the advice of Marius and accepted his reforms. And Julius compounded upon those. Because what they were doing was centralizing power. Power to exercise authority, one over the other. Because they had this army, this organized army, whose loyalty was not to the people. The loyalty was to the general. And it was because the general paid them. And the general paid them because of another law that Marius said was okay. That the Bible says is not okay. And if we go through Exodus and I follow their deal... You know, their, their recordings, all these theologians. I, I'll, I'll bring you updates. I may even try to put together some videos and show you where they go wrong. We're just part way through the first chapter. Actually, I guess they finished reading the first chapter. They just started the second chapter. But, uh, I'm sure they're not going to catch some because I already see them dropping the ball. Because they were in the bondage of Egypt where they had to pay a share of their labor to the government of Pharaoh. Now, from best of my recollection, there were no mentions of taskmasters in this until we get into Exodus. But that word taskmaster includes... It actually includes two words. And the first word that it includes is uh, a word that we will see as uh, the corvi. This statutory labor where a portion of your labor belongs to the government. And they can make you work for them without pay. They can actually force you to work without pay for uh, a little while. And, And... it, it begins with 
the letter Mem. Mem Semak is the word. And it, it means forced labor, task work, labor bands, labor gangs. You know, that's the different ways they, they translate it. Well, Mem, all of you who have been studying along with us on a regular basis, is, is the letter that stands for a fountain of water, a flow, a fountain of divine wisdom, or worldly stupidity. <laughs> it's a flow. Anyway. And, uh, but that's, that's very, and, and of course, Samak is the eternal cycle. And in the eternal cycle, you will find the wrath of God, because the eternal cycle is all those laws of nature that are already in place. And if you go down this path, it's going to take you this way. If you go down that path, it's going to take you that way. And it, it's circular, and it can become like a tornado and destroy you. But, uh, it just depends on which way the water flows. It's those two letters that they use to make the word that has to do with tribute. That's the way it's translated a lot of times. It's tribute, tributary, taskmaster. And uh, so that's that's what the Pharaoh that did not know Joseph appointed these taskmasters to oppress the people. And in that oppression... We may find some tyranny. Certainly we will because we know that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when they went into bondage by consent, which was actually the wrath of God, that was the cause and effect taking place. That's why they went into bondage. Because they had sold their own brother, Joseph, into bondage. And so they went into bondage. And when they went into bondage and had to give a portion of their labor every year to the government, they were weakened because they were dependent upon the government to provide them with social welfare. The free bread that they would need during time of famine. He was going to have the authority to redistribute the bread that they did have in Egypt from house to house. He was going to have that authority. In Rome, that was a particular office that, that, that they actually had, that people, you know, that the emperors actually exercised a particular office. Trebinicia Potestas, which has to do with the tribute power. And, and this, understanding this Trebinicia Potestas is key to understanding why all Christians were persecuted. Why why people could run through the streets of Rome murdering Christians and not be arrested. You have to say, well, that was a riot. That was lawlessness on their part. No. That was Lex Sacrata. Now, I just used the word Lex. Remember what we just talked about? There were two words for law in in Rome. See, there was only nomos in the Greek, but the Romans, they had two words for law. And lex sacrata means the sacred law. Christians were in violation of the sacred law, which was the sacred statute. They were, they were practicing a religion that blasphemed against the Son of God. The Christians blasphemed against the Son of God. But see, 
That's from the Roman point of view. Because the Romans considered Caesar to be the Son of God. They had rituals and ceremonies every year where they burned incense to Caesar as the Son of God. So, immediately you know, well, wait a minute, we're calling Jesus the Son of God. Jesus is our Savior. We go to the church to practice our religion. But the Romans went to the temple to practice their religion. And Caesar was the Son of God. And Caesar, Caesar was the Savior of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But Jesus was the Prince of Peace and the Son of God and the Savior. So you see, those terms, they're using the same terms. But one is applying them to Caesar and the other one is applying them to Jesus. They both had systems of social welfare where somebody had the right to decide the redistribution of the bread from house to house. We see that right away in Acts, that the Christians were dividing the bread from house to house. And they were doing it through a network of ministers that included the apostles, but also the 120 in the upper room and and probably a lot, lot more because if they were doing what Christ said back there in Mark 6, organizing themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, then every ten had a minister and every hundred had a you know, every ten of those ministers had a minister. And through that network, they were able to rightly divide the bread from house to house. Now, they did have some problems with, like, the Greeks were not getting enough. Because if you watch, if you if you were to chart with, you know, one of those animations of the famines that crossed through the Roman Empire, sometimes because of climate change... <laughs> Actually, that was a real thing. Climate change. The world was getting cooler at times and it was getting hotter at times. And those people who took advantage of that got more power. And those people who could see the signs of the times and prepare for it, they could maintain their power, their right to choose what what the Greeks would call the exousia. The exousia is the power to choose. And see, God gave us the power to choose. That was one of those endowed rights that Jefferson was talking about. We are endowed by God with certain, you know, the God of nature with certain inalienable rights. Well, one of them is the power to choose how to divide the bread that we produce because we're the means of production. And Christians had that power. But in Rome, that power was Caesar's. And we'll tell you what they called that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so we were talking about the Tribunicia Potestas, which was one of the offices of... uh, Caesar, uh, Caesar Augustus wanted it, and uh, it, uh, it it passed down all the way, at least till Diocletian, uh, which included the Diocletian persecution of Christians, and the law they were using to persecute Christians was tied in with that office, and you know it it was an office that had to do with tribunica, meaning tribune, 
uh, guy in charge of tribute, etc. Potestas had to do with power. Well, if you study the idea of potestas, which we do at Preparing You, we have a little article on that, that originated with the people. That's the power of the people. And just like I was talking to you about militia, the there was an assumption with the Trevenikian power, kind of paraphrasing it into English, that enhanced what you would call the imperium, which uh, obviously is connected with the idea of being emperor. Although imperator means commander-in-chief, as words developed, there was no commander-in-chief when they first started using the word imperium. Uh, but imperium applied to individuals, just like potestas applied to individuals. Because the Romans knew that there was a creator God, that we were all created. They knew that that they were a creation of their fathers before them, and their father before them was a creation of their father before them, and their father before that guy was a creation of the father before him. They understood that that's what was going on throughout their history. And they eventually figured that they went back to some sort of creator that created mankind and created everything. Because everything they saw had a creative history to it. They weren't always there when it was created, but it was a pretty good natural law assumption that something created everything. Now, people want to take the personality out of the creator, you know, the character out of the creator, which is like taking the spirit out of the creator, because that's what the spirit is. Spirit tells us what the what the character of the creator is. You know, what kind of spirit that creator is. I mean, we, we talk about Lucifer, who is this false accuser, and he has a spirit. A spirit of control, and a spirit of destruction, and a spirit of envy, and all these things that we apply to this spirit of Satan, which means the adversary. And he's the adversary to the spirit of God, who is a creator, who is a giver of life, a bringer of peace, all these things. And so all those characteristics we put over in this personality we call God, and all the bad things, the negative virtues, what we call vices, we put over in the personality we call Satan. He has all those. Most of us have some of one and uh, and less of the others. And in reality, all the vices are just the absence of virtue. We identify them as vices, but they really just... What comes about when you're missing the virtue? See, if, if courage is a virtue, if you're a coward, we call that a vice, but it's really just the absence of courage. You know, if you're, if you're a generous soul with a generous spirit that you like to share what you have with others, that, you know, I, I remember seeing an old, old movie and, uh, the, they, these people sat down with some food and, uh, they looked at one guy, he didn't have any food and and he just got a little bit out of the bottom of the pot because he was the last one, he was kind of a visitor or something. And the guy reaches over and he scrapes some of his food off into the other guy's plate. He didn't have to do that, but he did that. And every time I think of that movie, I also think of when I was working in the onion radish fields of Harry Maranaka 
down in California, and there were pickers there from Mexico who were picking that radishes. We were in the radish section at that time. And uh, we were picking up the last of them. It was late in the evening, and I was laying out the crates, and we were counting, you know, 50 bundles or whatever it was, 54 bundles per crate. And uh, one guy filled up his crate, and he had like 10 bundles that wasn't going to fill up a crate. And he just took them and tossed them over into the pile of the poorest picker in the field. It was a new guy, and he was pretty slow, and he hadn't picked very many. He wasn't going to make much money that day. But he took the last 10 or so that he had picked and just threw them into that guy's pile. So when we packed them up, he would get paid for that crate. And several other guys did the same thing. As their crates were filled, they had like two bundles left over or five bundles left over. Everybody threw it in the poor guy's bundle. That's the kingdom of God there. I didn't, I wouldn't have called it the kingdom of God at the time, but it, it, it played music in my heart. It pulled on the heart, my heartstrings. That's what we call it. That's the metaphor we use. Pulled on the heartstrings. That these guys all did this for the guy. And, and they did it regularly. And he got to be a better picker. He eventually, either I disappeared or he did. I don't know whatever happened to him. Or, you know, I went on to do, greater things um, but uh, that that was a unique and important aspect of the kingdom of this idea of sharing and if somebody has that spirit of sharing we call that a virtue if somebody's selfish it isn't a separate spirit it's just what comes about when you're not sharing it's it's like, this is why we equate good with light. Because light exists. It comes in the room, fills the room. But darkness doesn't exist. It's just absent of light. And I, I went down that rabbit trail because some of you out there need to realize that you can't fight against the darkness. You just have to turn on the light. And this is, this is the key to finding the kingdom is that you have to turn on the light. And the first light you need to turn on is the light in your own heart. So you have to look into your own heart and struggle with your own heart and say, am I selfish or unselfish? Am I sharing like God? Am I a giver of life or am I a taker of life? Am I feeding my neighbor or biting my neighbor? This is, this is the key to understand Exodus and all the books of the Bible is to understand or do you have the character of God are you children of God or are you children of Satan have you been begotten by them so let's go back to how are we going to tie this into Trebunician powers well the Trebunician powers the Trebunician potestas potestas used to be in every man potestas is your power to exercise dominion over the fish and over the the land and over the fauna and dressing and keeping the planet that we were given dominion. The power to do that is the potestas. There is something else that that enhanced in Caesar when they gave him this tribune power and that other thing was the imperium. 
In Roman law, Caesar's right to authority or dominion over the subject citizenry as emperor stemmed from his position as the vicarious pater, substitute father. Why would I say that? Because the authority of the imperium of the Roman of Rome was the at least twofold. Originally, it was Merum was only outside the walls of the jurisdiction conferred by the Lex Curiata and the same from the power of the sword to turn the life of wicked men away from their wickedness. But then there was also another aspect to the Imperium which was they called the Mixtum which was incidents of jurisdiction inside the wall. So there's the Merum that deals with invading forces from all enemies foreign and then there's the power of dealing with all enemies domestic which was the Mixtum. Together those two things, those two powers were called the Imperium and the Imperium was a characteristic found in each family in each each member of the family. The patria potestas was found within the family. Because God created the family. He created man and woman and they procreated a family. That's a that's an institution of God. Cain instituted the first legal system and the first city-state. Nimrod, Caesar, Pharaoh, they all created legal systems. They didn't God doesn't create governments. God created people. God created the institution of the family. And then families have a choice, or at least they do for a while, a exousia, right, to gather together according to some cultural, political scheme and take care of the needs of each other. Because you have to love your neighbor as yourself. That means your neighboring family as yourself. To be like God and be this purveyor of life that you have to share in the responsibility of the life of the families next to you. But you have to do it in the character of God. Because God just gave us this planet. We didn't earn it. We didn't buy it. We didn't create it. We didn't build it. Like the old joke where a guy... Scientists say they don't need God anymore. They can create life in a test tube and they can make almost any creature they want, you know, with genetic engineering. And we got a lot of guys running around like Noah Harari thinking that they can do this and they can compete with God. They don't need God anymore. He's an atheist. He doesn't believe me. He's a Jew, but he's a vegetarian and he's an atheist. <laughs> and he lives in Israel. And he is the darling of the Great Reset. And you can go read our article on the Great Reset and the greater, greater Reset of God and decide which reset you want to be a part of. But the reality is they think they don't need God. And the scientists don't think they need God. And so they're going to have a competition. And so God on one side and the scientists on the other. And God takes some dirt and molds a creature and blows on it. And it, it's alive and it goes running across the ground. And so the scientists say, oh, okay, we can we can do that. And so they take some dirt. And God says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Get your own dirt. <laughs> so 
there really isn't any competition if you if you look at the universe that way. That scientists can't do everything that God does unless they can make their own dirt, <laughs> and uh, unless they figure out how to replicate the Big Bang, which is the whole purpose of the idea of the Big Bang. And I don't mind people pondering these ideas, mathematicians, etc. But they scientists do it to take God out of the equation. But, you know, real scientists, uh, for a long time now, and we've mentioned a lot of them, uh, and there are guys who write whole books about them, the scientists realize that we can't figure this out with our brains alone. In other words, we can't figure this out with the tree of knowledge alone. <laughs> we can figure this out only with the tree of life. And in order to... Ha- do that, we need to eat of the tree of life. In order to eat of the tree of life, we need to go near it. In order to go near the tree of life, we have to come within the light of the angel who stands above the tree of life and see our own nakedness. We have to have humility, which is why Christ is preaching humility. Nothing is more humbling than forgiving your enemy and feeding your enemy and giving drink to your enemy. These are these are products of a humble heart, and you need that humble heart to get near the light, to eat of the tree of life, to to eat of the Holy Spirit, to receive of the Holy Spirit. You need to draw near that tree. In order to draw near that tree, you need to come into the light. And when you come into the light, the first thing you're going to see, because the first thing that's there with you is you. And so you need to look at that. So the things that I'm pointing out that you're not doing, that all these parents are not doing, is they're already sending their kids to public schools at the expense of their neighbor. And and the guy was saying it's expensive to go to a private school. Well, it's not very expensive to homeschool, although it does cost. It may not cost you money, but it's certainly going to cost you in time. But if you come together in the tens, hundreds and, th- hundreds and thousands like Christ commanded, it'll be a lot easier, a lot more affordable on an individual family basis because you can work together and help one another out. You could even start private schools. When we start- first started homeschooling, there was just a couple other families in the area that were homeschooling. And uh, I said, well, if we incorporate a school then they can't say that we're just homeschooling, that we just send our kids to the school. And they didn't have enough laws on the statutes to stop us from doing that. As a matter of fact, they had laws in the statutes that allowed us to do that. So I told them, and they said, okay, that sounds like a great idea. And so I said, well, I don't know how to write up incorporation papers. I didn't then. And so I wanted to make sure all the dots were dotted and all the T's were crossed. So I went to a lawyer and paid him what I thought was a ridiculous amount of money then it was actually pretty cheap. The next corporation I created, I created in, in a in a parking lot <laughs> with a pencil, filling out the paperwork. But uh, I created that, and I got footed with the bill and everybody. But eventually, I realized that that wasn't the solution, and I've written whole books about it. But I paid it. I paid that way. Because that's how I was... But in that process of reading and studying and going and talking to people, I started figuring out what Cain was doing, what Nimrod was doing, what Pharaoh was doing, what Caesar was doing, what FDR was doing, what LBJ was doing, what Clowder and Pivot were doing, what Obama was doing, what 
etc., etc. <laughs> and but more important, I figured out what we should be doing. And the reason parents don't have the rights anymore is that parents have not been exercising the responsibility of being the parents of education, of welfare, of taking care of one another, of providing for one another, of helping one another. And in that process, you're going to come face to face with the absence of love in your own heart. We call that selfishness, which is just the absence of love. This absence of willing to lay down your life for your fellow man. And and Christ told you, you know, just like there's a wrath of God, when you are selfish... The wrath of God and the consequences of that selfishness are built into nature and destruction will eventually be the result. You will degenerate as a people. The tyrants will come and this is what will come of that. And it's your choice. But just as there is a wrath of God, the, the bad consequences, there's good consequences that if you go the other way, if you turn around, if you think the opposite way, that I, the way I get to the kingdom of God is not by taking away from my neighbor by force, but by choosing, exercising that power of choice to share with my neighbor. I want you to do it in a practical way, in a wise way, in a way that you can oversee if the $20 bill you gave is actually doing anybody any good. You can't do that by handing that $20 bill out the car window. You really can't do it by sending a $20 bill to even the Red Cross. You don't know how most of that money is spent. And you won't know how all of it is spent. But if you come together in a network, you'll have a better idea because you'll be able to see it. It'll be right in front of you. And there is some casting your bread upon the waters, which you're not going to see. But in your immediate environment, you can actually see. And then if you have the annual gatherings, multiple annual gatherings, you can come together and get to see the other people. And the the critical thing is that as you walk in the light, your eyes won't be darkened anymore. You'll be able to see, see things more clearly. You'll be able to walk into a room and know, I don't want to have anything to do with that guy. You, you'll, you'll sense it. Because, not because you have the power, but because God is with you and God is showing you. If you think it's because you're going to have the power, then that's vanity and that's the opposite of humility. And it is, you think you're God, you can decide. See, that's the problem. I've had, I, I was recently plagued on, uh, Facebook with people who were, you know, tax the rich, tax the billionaires. There should be no billionaires. You should t- if we did that, then, you know, my life would be so much better. I have 99 problems, and they'd all be solved by increasing my wages. And, and they complain about Elon Musk buying Twitter. He could have done so much good with that. Instead, he bought Twitter. W- what happened to the money when he bought Twitter? Did that money go into some dark void somewhere and disappear off the, out of existence? No, that's not the way nature works. The guys who sold them Twitter, all the guys who had shares and Twitter and all that stuff, they got that money. That money's still there. What he did is he diversified the power of choice, the imperium. 
All those people who got money for their Twitter stock, which was more than it was worth, they they got money. They could go out and do great things. They could go out and take care of the poor. They got that money. He didn't throw it away. He gave it to people for a few lines of code <laughs> and maybe a couple buildings. I mean, he obviously didn't need all the employees that he had. He laid them off, yeah. But he laid them off according to the laws of Rome. Did you know that? Do you know all, you know, unemployment insurance, you fire somebody, you got to give them, there were severance packages, there was, there's going to be unemployment benefits. All those people are going to get those things. All those laws are based on the slave laws of Rome. If if you look up employee employer in Blacks or, or no Clark Summary of U.S. American Law, you also find it in Blacks. But in Clark Summary of U.S. American Law, you, the index will tell you see master slave. <laughs> that was a that was a Kodak moment when I read that. But the Imperium, the Potestas, the power, the Exousia, the power to choose, all those things. You were endowed with, but now the government has them. They can choose for you because you went to the government and said, Oh, dear government, will you give me free education? And the government said, Well, we can't do that unless we take the money away from your neighbor. And you said, Okay. <laughs> now, you may have not gone through that actual conversation, but any, you know, a five-year-old could figure it out. You know, if you just laid out a few of the facts. All those guys, Obama, FDR, they're not giving you their money. They're giving you your neighbor's money. That's coveting your neighbor's goods to desire benefits that will be taken and provided for by taking away from your neighbor. That's taking a bite out of your neighbor. So all those parents are complaining about, you can't... Just force my children to read this and you can't do that. That's not fair. It is fair. It is justice. You can't take money from me. Taxation is theft. No. Taxation is justice. Now, I will admit, sometimes they get out of hand. And I'm sure they got out of hand in Egypt. But the people in Egypt, the burden in Egypt came on them because... Go all the way back to the beginning. To the genus, the beginning. They sold their brother into slavery. And lied about it to their father. And lied about it to themselves. I mean, I'm sure they forgot all about it at times. But he, you know, Joseph was back there thrown into prisons. He was faced with moral dilemmas himself. You know, like, should I sleep with this guy's wife? No, I better not do that. He was making choices all along his road and path. And because of that, the cause and effect took place and he became the most powerful man in Egypt. If you don't have power, don't blame it on the billionaires. Don't blame it on the government. Don't blame it on uh, the statutes. Blame it on yourself because you have the power if you repent and start thinking the other way and start laying down your life even if it just starts with a penny, you will be able to pick up your life more abundant. Now, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel, 
because if you do it to get money, <laughs> you know, like if you give money to us, uh, you will get more money from God. He will bless you with more money. I'm appealing to your selfishness. Now, you might get more money. I don't know. And I'm sure people who give to some of these ministers who say that, they do get more money. Some of them do. But I've explained that in, in the process of healing people, etc. That, uh, yeah, you look a little closer and, and somebody's is, is, is losing on that deal. They'll hold up the winners and they'll show you, look at this guy, he gave this money and now he's got all this money. I mean, it's like, uh, these salesmen on, uh, on, uh, late night TV, I guess. I don't, I don't see that stuff, but I used to see it. But, uh, prosperity, guys, if you're doing it so that you can make a good deal with God, then you're being selfish again. Don't, don't do that. You have to really be unselfish. You'll spoil, you'll spoil the cake if you do it with hope, anything more than hope. So that's all really important. So let's, Let's come back in a few minutes and we'll uh, look this over again. And we'll see if we can get a plan to get back your right to raise your own children. Get back the ownership of your children. And maybe in the process, get more. We'll be right back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, like I've said before, you know, the emperors had lots of different offices. We've combined those offices. Actually, uh, right about that time, there were grammarians uh, that were writing about uh, the idea of separation of powers because they were writing about it because they were seeing this consolidation of power. Because the more the people looked to the government, the more the people looked to Caesar and the government that was constructed – for their protection instead of gathering together to protect one another and to be there for one another protect them from famine protect them from uh, poverty protect them from disease Uh, there was a way in which societies did that and it's almost blotted entirely out of the collective consciousness of people today Uh, but if you you know People don't realize that Rome had a 700-year history before the first Caesar. And during the after the first 200 years, they formed this republic, fashioned after, to some degree, after the Israelite republic. There, wasn't, there was no statute making powers vested in the Senate. The Senate were just the old men, the elders of the community. And and they were picked pretty much through a network of small groups of Romans, Latins, because uh, Rome, the, even the word Rome, that a Roman, that's from uh, Romeos, that's a Greek word. They didn't call themselves Romans at first, you know. And you know, I've I've told the story that supposedly Romulus and Remus started Rome and all this stuff, and they were raised by a wolf. Etc. In reading the Plutarch, you know, I quote Plutarch too. I should add to the page on Plutarch because he he was talking about it. This idea that they were raised by a wolf is 
is a legend that was created after a great deal of the records of the early Roman Republic were destroyed in fires around 390 B.C. And so they fabricated this, but some who read, you know, because all the histories weren't in the same destructive, and some of them survived, but not as well. But people like Plutarch, who read a great deal, and the other people, they explained that the word for prostitute is the same word for she-wolf in the Latin language. And so... A she-wolf <laughs> raised Romulus and Remus because they didn't have a father. They were raised by a prostitute. They weren't raised by a wolf. Now, there's a lot of symbolism, and I can use the wolf story and, and because all these stories and all these, just like the allegories in the Bible, and this is the thing that we're going to see if I continue to go along, it could bear to go along with Jordan Peterson and these theologians and their adventures in Exodus land. These words, these stories are symbols of ideas, of principles uh, that are a part of the law of nature. That if you understood and allow your mind to be changed so that you stop coveting your neighbor's goods to the agency of the government that you're now complaining about, that the opposite cause and effect will start to take place and the power will come back to you. This is what I said when I was asked uh, in the afternoon show, I, I can take calls and questions. We got one brave soul who asked a question about militia. Don't you have to be a good family be, before you become a part of the militia? Well, no. And I won't go into the whole, you can go back and listen to the program that we did last week and find out that explanation. We have a whole article on militia. I can actually put that show on there, but everybody between the ages of 17 and 45 in the United States, every man is already a member of the militia by statute they're just not well organized, and they're not well organized because they've been looking to a central government to provide them with all their benefits their free bread, their uh, unemployment their uh, health education and welfare And that makes the government stronger and stronger and stronger, at least more and more powerful, but also more and more corrupt. And it makes you weaker and weaker and weaker. You can change that by taking back your responsibilities and you can get stronger and stronger and stronger. And if you take back your responsibilities, not only for your own family, but for neighboring families and and a network of families all across the United States and all around the world, you will become stronger and stronger. And the beautiful thing is you don't have to get 51% of the vote in order to put this into play. You only need about 5%. Because 5% of the Roman Empire became Christian and it altered the course of history. Just like Marius's reforms to the military altered the course of Roman history and therefore the history of the world. Of course, it didn't just... Just like you know we said in our article on strangers and pilgrims, that something was going on, that at the same time, Jamestown and Plymouth got the same idea and with no cell phones anywhere. <laughs> you know, why is that? Because there's a collective consciousness out here. And just as there is a collective unconsciousness, that if you don't want to see the truth, you won't see all the things that are behind the truth that you don't want to see. 
and your eyes will be darkened. You will not see what's coming. You will not know what's going to happen next. You will not know what to do about it. But if you're willing to see the truth about yourself, you can start to see the truth about other people. And if you start seeing the truth about other people, see the truth about your history and the history of the world, and start acting upon it according to the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of Jesus, which is the Christ. Christ means anointing. Jesus was anointed with the Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And you can be anointed with that same Holy Spirit and see and do the things that Christ did if you will turn around and head back to the light instead of keep running into the darkness because you're afraid to admit that you screwed up, that you're, that you're naked in the wilderness, that you're not really children of God, you're children of Satan who makes you feel like you're children of God because he tickles your ears, makes you feel good, offers you prosperity gospels. Offers you a place in heaven just because you thought a thought. You actually earned heaven because you thought a thought and you said some magic words. doesn't work that way. If you're not lovers of the light, you're not born again. That's what it says. Read the whole quote. Read it at Preparing You and we'll show you the footnotes. John John 3.16 in case you're looking. <laughs> Go to PreparingYou.com Click on Bible Click on John, click on John 3.16. (laughs) And you'll see the qualifications to know whether or not you're really born again. Because you get a tingly good feeling, that doesn't mean you're born again. As a matter of fact, being born again, there's a certain amount of pain involved, just like there always is with birth. But the reality is the masses have degenerated. Some of them have become perfect savages. Some of them are just waking up. But how long will you, O sluggard, who have been neglectful in the ways of righteousness, complain about what you call injustice when you have been unjust to your neighbor? You have sent people to your neighbor's house to get, to take from your neighbor so that you can have stuff for free. And that's why private school is so expensive. It's less expensive in the kingdom of God, but you have to seek the kingdom of God in order to Take advantage of the discount. <laughs> that's a that's the perfect law of liberty. Is not the perfect law of no responsibility. You have to take back your responsibilities, because religion was a duty. You look up the word religion. It's not just what you think about God. It's a duty, and it's a responsibility. And it's interesting in that it's a pious duty. The word pious has to do with a patrimonial responsibility. Love, you know, honor thy father and thy mother. Had to take care of thy father and thy mother. The power of Caesar was the power of Patronus. Almost all these offices, you know, like I said, the, the tribune of power, that, there was that office, but the other offices too. Pontificus uh, Maximilius. Uh, I gotta remember the Latin. <laughs> I have to put on my Latin hat. I have to keep switching back and forth on these different <laughs> different things. But that was an office too. And that had to do with the priest side uh, of this imperium, of this uh, power. And uh, that's why, you know, Julius Caesar saw it 
And Augustus Caesar, of course, saw it because he knew Julius. That, and this is how he got his popularity. Because when Caesar came back, if you read our article, which I haven't finished on Julius Caesar, when Caesar came back from Gaul, Caesar had killed millions of people. He boasted of having killed millions of people. In one or a couple of battles alone, he killed 130,000 people. And another battle, 100,000. Altogether, about 300,000. I think it was in, in about uh, three major battles. He'd killed 300,000 people. But when he came back uh, from Gaul and his adventures, he boasted uh, of 1,192,000 deaths. Uh, according to the historian uh, Kurt uh, Raflava, who is a professor emeritus at Brown's University. But the reality is, this is what he's boasting. He was actually ordered to disband his army and to report back to Rome to be tried for Rome uh, for war crimes. But guess what? He had been sending lots of money back through the priests that he knew back when he was a priest because the priests were in charge of managing the welfare. You wouldn't know that reading about priests in Wikipedia. But that's what it was. See, before the temples were buildings, there was no building. Rome didn't build stone temples for their temples. Their temples were made without hands in the early days of the Libera Res Publica. There was no buildings there. It, the temple was a place. It's a place where they gathered and settled these issues in this network of tens, hundreds, and thousands that made Rome so strong, which allowed them to have a strong militia. When they got away from that, when they were so prosperous that they got away and they thought they didn't need to give regularly to the needy to create those social bonds, then suddenly their army turned and ran. So then they, instead of going back to the ways of the ancients, which the Bible tells you, you remember the ways of the ancients, they didn't go back to the ways of the ancients. They went ahead with Marius and started creating an army that operated by top-down authority, where the general was like a king. Just like the Israelites did with Saul. Give us a king. But if I give you a king, he will take and take and take and take and take and take and you'll cry out. And, and when you cry out, God will not even hear you. Because you created a system of top-down authority. You pretend to elect that king, but it's still top-down authority. He appoints the taskmasters over you. He tells you what you can teach your children and what you can't. If you teach your children wrong, they will take your children away from you. They will call you an unfit parent. And they will be blessed for it. Because the law... I mean, you know, I was amazed that it was Tiberius who brought in the law that you could be arrested for suspicion. And he was only the second emperor. Augustus I, Tiberius II. The, the uh, Patriot Act made suspicion a crime. You can be arrested for suspicion. Held in jail without trial. For a year or more. Indefinitely. That's the Patriot Act. I read it. When they were proposing it. You didn't. 
I told people on the show what they were doing. But you weren't listening. You weren't listening, you weren't hearing because you weren't sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And I have been told not to cast pearls before swine, although I did broadcast it on the radio. I was just looking at some of the dates. I mean, just recently, John Campbell uh, in England, top scientist, well-respected, hasn't been censored yet. He's coming out realizing, oh, the virus was manufactured in a lab. Yeah, it didn't do... Any, but he doesn't say anybody is lying. He says they're... they're uh, he used several different phrases, you know, like their economy with the truth. <laughs> And he apologized. He came out just a couple of days ago with a 20-minute video about apologizing to the people because he was duped by the media and people representing themselves as science. And But we reported it. We reported it back in 2019 and in 2020. We, we reported the... You know, there was actually scientists who saw this. They were smart enough. They saw the censorship coming. And so they actually made reports on recordings and they, they posted the recordings. They, they, and then eventually they published their study in January of 2021. I think they published it. We reported it. We reported it even before that because there was a preliminary publication. How did I even find that? Because God showed me. Because I try to walk in the light. I don't walk in the light like I need to. But if we work together, we can bring light to one another and share that light with one another. Because the debt that we are facing, we cannot pay. And it's not just the statutory debt. It's, it's the debt we have because we have sinned against one another. We have been taking a bite out of one another over a century in America because we've gone the way of Marius. We've gone the way of Cain. We've gone the way of Nimrod. We're not going the way of Christ. So it'll be interesting to see what these theologians sitting down with uh, Mr. Jordan Peterson discover. And, uh, but we've got our work cut out for us and we need to work together. We need to spend the time. We spend the sweat, spend the toil. Because that's a part of that laying down our life for one another in order to pick up a life more abundant. Because that life more abundant only comes from God. And He showed you the way. The way of God is not the prosperity gospel. It's the sacrifice gospel. If Christ would sacrifice Himself completely for you, well, how will you sacrifice yourself for your fellow man? Because that's what religion is. It's the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man with no strings attached. Caesar does it. He takes care of the needy, but he attaches strings. And those strings give him more and more power. He has your potestas, your imperium, your exousia. Paul says, let Every man remains subject to the higher exosio, which is the exosio given to you by God, the original. Christians were beheaded on the spot because they did not bow to the genius of Caesar. 
and I just put up a page on the genius. What genius? What what did they mean? And that's in the uh, the first time I saw it used that I can recall was in the trial of Christians in North Africa. And they said that they needed to abide by the genius of Caesar. But they weren't. They were abiding by the genius of Christ. Because to them, Christ was the Son of God. To them, Christ was the Savior. Caesar used force. And everybody throughout the Roman Empire used force. But Christians did not force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. They did not want to tax tax the billionaires. But they didn't want to tax their next door neighbor either. They wanted to take care of one another through love. It's the same word for love. It's also translated charity. Paul says it. They translate it charity. Christ says it. They translate it love. Same word. And if you let, if you're not living by love, what are you living by? If you're depending upon the governments of the world to provide you with what you don't want to pay for yourself, then you will go back into the bondage of Egypt, which is you've already done, and you'll go back under tyrants. And when you cry out, according to Samuel 8, or Samuel 8, God will not hear you. If you want God to hear you, you have to hear the cries of your neighbor, those that are being oppressed. Most of you are not being oppressed. You're getting exactly what you deserve because you haven't been going the way of Christ. But I hope you repent. Then when you repent and start going the way of Christ, then they come and try to do the same thing to you that they're doing to everybody else. God might hear you. But you have to hear others. You can't be just an isolated family that lives on my little farm and we've got our little food and we've got a little bunker and we've got our... No. You have to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. You even have to care about your enemy. All those people who don't see the light are afraid to come into the light. You have to walk into the light and see how many people you can get to come with you to walk into the light. (laughs) But when you walk into the light, you have to become a doer of the word. And the word is about sacrifice. It's about caring about others as much as you care about yourself. You don't want to be following a Caesar who brags about killing a million people. And that we're not even counting the people that he enslaved. They're talking, you know, one figure was like 900,000 people were enslaved by Caesar, by Caesar's armies. That's a lot. And, uh, I mean, when he was attacking uh, uh offshoot of the Cambridge tribe, the women, when they saw that the women were out there fighting with him, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that when he attacked these bands of Gauls moving, uh, that he was actually, they were moving with their families. They were actually migrating to other areas because of climate change. <laughs> that things got warm a little bit after this, but at that particular time, there had been some climate change. 
and they are migrating to find better places to farm and cultivate, raise their families. So when he attacked, he attacked the men, women, and children and killed the men, women, and children. He, But he also had built this slave market, which he knew all about from his earlier, between the time when he was a priest and a general, he learned about the slave market, which was very, very lucrative if you sold the slaves in North Africa because they love white slaves down there. And uh, he uh, didn't want the women to all be killed, but they, the women were fighting. They, they were shield bearers. They, they were carrying weapons of their own. And when the women saw that they were not going to win and that they were about to be rounded up, to be sold as slaves, they killed themselves. They, they killed their children and themselves rather than be taken by the Julius Caesar, which is, it was the Sig, Sig Ambri that, uh, where they talk about this, where he burned all their villages and houses and cut down all their corn. Thousands. You know, all those million weren't killed by swords. They were killed by famine. Because all, the Great Reset knows they have to control your food. They just, Getting you injected with experimental drugs, that that was pretty easy. But they couldn't get everybody injected, and it didn't work with everybody, whatever they're trying to do. But food, everybody needs to eat. They're going to want to control food. And anybody hoarding food, you're going to be a criminal. You're violating the sacred responsibility. And they're going to come after you. You're going to need God between you and them. So you better start doing it the way God said to do it. But until then, all I can say is peace on your house and may God be with you. Come, join the network. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.